Okay, so let me just tell you that sometimes being a preacher of the word, sometimes being a Bible teacher uh, is really tough. And there are times when I prepare a message knowing that there's going to be people who are frowning at me while I'm preaching. And knowing that there's going to be some people who are going to be more upset as the message goes on. And knowing that I'm probably going to get some emails saying, you're full of it. And uh, that's just a part of the deal um, because sometimes what I have to say from the Word of God just makes people uncomfortable. Um, and, and sometimes what I have to say on a Sunday morning is going to create conflict. And I'm just being honest with you. And I know some of you think, well, you kind of like conflict, don't you? No, I tell my wife this all the time. I don't like conflict. I just love truth more than I hate conflict. And I realize that sometimes when we speak the truth, even in love, people's feathers get ruffled. And, and um, some truths are worth upsetting the apple cart over. It seems like the last couple of years, um, there's been more division in our culture than I have ever seen in my life. It seems like the last couple of years there's been more division among even the body of Christ than I have ever seen in my life. Um, and uh, it was easier when I would preach on a Sunday morning and whoever showed up in this room heard it, and that was it. And I could sort of bank on the fact that, you know, a lot of the people in this room uh, know that I love them. And a lot of the people that will show up on a Sunday morning even love me and know my heart and understand where I'm coming from. But now it's like people everywhere that are watching or listening to this. There's podcasts, live stream. Uh, it's all over the Internet. It's there forever. Everything I say, which is the scariest thing in the world, everything I say uh, is there forever. And so it invites more and more people to be upset. And it's not that big a deal for, for somebody like me who's reaching hundreds of people as it is for some of the megachurch pastors I have friendships with who have been telling me the last year or two that the decisions they make and the sermons that they preach um, result in hundreds of angry emails Every time. Dozens or hundreds of people leaving the church because you said something that gave them the idea that maybe you didn't like their candidate as much as you like the other candidate. Or maybe you said something that gave them the idea that uh, you're against their pet cause or you're for the enemy's pet cause or whatever the case is. And um, so everything that we say is out there. We get emails. Um, and... And we're challenged, honestly, I told you I was going to let you behind the curtain. We're challenged, honestly, as preachers to go, where do we find this line 
between trying not to upset anybody, but then also preaching the truth. But here's the thing. The Bible is the Word of God. Okay, that was a weak amen. You're going to get mad at me for stuff I say later. At least agree with this. The Bible is the Word of God. Amen? Yes, the Bible is the Word of God, and it says what it says. And it means what it means, and sometimes what it says and what it means doesn't sit well with me. Sometimes what it says and what it means doesn't sit well with you, but it is the Word of God, and it is just as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago to its original audience. It is, according to Hebrews chapter 4, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the Word of God. It's living and active, empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually touch our hearts and minds in a way that changes our lives. And so even in times when our culture is deeply divided, even in times when there are genuine issues that are, that are way more complex than social media would make us believe, even in times like that, we're going to keep preaching God's Word. Today's message might be a little bit controversial. It may not slide easily through the filters that you have in place, political filters, uh, social filters, racial filters, religious filters, whatever your filters might be. And I'm convinced that we need to hear and apply God's word today. And that if we can shut off some of the unbiblical, preconceived notions and prejudices that we all carry with us, and, and just let God's word speak for itself, our lives and ultimately our world is going to be better for it. And so um, here we are in June of 2021, craziest time of our lives. Let's take a deep breath. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8 in hopes of finding the heart of God in the Word of God and allowing His Word to make our hearts more like His hearts. So as you're turning to Acts chapter 8, I'm going to give you some context, and I'm going to let Ricky change my microphone. Um, I'm going to give you some context to Acts chapter 8, just as a reminder, right? So Acts chapter 1, we get that incredible mission, right? You're to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we get sort of the introduction of the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, it all hits the fan when the Holy Spirit makes a splash. The church is born, right? The people are filled with the Spirit. 3,000 new believers swept into the church in that afternoon alone. And, and in Acts chapter 2 through 5, we see this incredible picture of church growth and miracles and answered prayers and powerful ministry and all of that stuff going on. And in Acts chapter 6, we get introduced to a couple of new players. And since we're kind of ping-ponging around the book of Acts, I got to stop in Acts chapter 6 for a second and introduce you to a couple of people who are going to figure into today's message. So if you look with me in Acts chapter 6, I know I told you to turn to chapter 8, but that was just a test. 
This is Acts chapter 6. I want you to go with me to verse 1, and let's look at Acts 6, 1 through 6. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Okay, let's stop for a second. The church is growing, right? All these people have come from all over. They're now living in each other's homes and they're sharing things and they're selling their goods in order to take care of each other. People have come from out of town and just never went back. They stayed. And so now what we have is these Jews that are from Judea, from Jerusalem, from that area, Israelites, if you will, and they've grown up in Israel as Jews, and now they've been swept into the church, and they are now Jewish Christians. The word Christian is not being used to describe these people yet. This is just the next step in Judaism, as far as they can understand it. And so you have those Jews that are in the center of the church, but you also have these people who have come. These are Greek-speaking people, people who have come from the surrounding regions. These people are Jews also, Right, But maybe this would be like the difference between saying, you know, the, the Jews in Israel today compared to, say, the Jews in the United States. They're all Jews, but there's a, a complete cultural difference. There's a national difference. There are language differences, all of that kind of stuff. So we have these Greek or Hellenistic Jews, and then we have these Israelite Jews, and they've all been swept into the church together, and they're all trying to figure this out, and they don't even speak the same languages. So you can imagine what the challenges are like, right? And so one of the things they do is they take care of widows, and so all of the widows are being taken care of and they're being served meals and they're being ministered to and they're being taken care of. And a complaint arises among the Greek uh, believers saying, you know what, our widows are being ignored. The, the, you know, the, the church is led by the apostles. Those guys are Israelite Jews. And so the Israelite Jews have all the power in this church. And you know what they're doing? They're taking care of their own and ignoring our people. And so already we have this rift beginning in the church where there is an us and there is a them. That's not what we saw before, right? They had all things in common. They were of one mind. They shared all of their property. It was us, 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 us. And now there's an us and a them even within the church. And the them, the Hellenistic Jews, are saying, hey, we're getting the short end of the stick. And they're starting to be this upset in the church, this division. Verse 2, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who you may put in charge of this task. We need some administrators in this church. We need some people who are going to oversee these ministries and make sure that things are being done right. Now, the complaint is from the Greek Jews. And so what do they do? They choose these seven men. They have verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, that's a Greek name, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, that's a Greek name, Procurus, that's a Greek name, Nicanor, that's a Greek name, Timon, that's a Greek name, 
Uh, Parmenas, that's a Greek name, and Nicholas. If you don't know Nicholas is a Greek name, you haven't been paying attention. Most Greek people I know are named Nicholas. Um, a proselyte from Antioch. They choose these seven guys to become the administrators of the church. What we today might call deacons it comes from the Greek word diakonos, which is the word that is used in this passage. And, and we're going to put these guys in charge of making sure the food gets distributed. Not one Israelite Jew among them. They're all Greek Jews. We're going to erase this us and them thing by empowering them. That's what they decided to do, okay? And so these guys become key leaders in the church so that the apostles can continue doing the things that they needed to do. That's Acts chapter 6. Now in Acts chapter 7, one of these guys, Stephen, is a brilliant orator. He's a brilliant debater. And so what does he do? He starts debating the Jewish religious leaders who are saying that Christ is not the Messiah. And he starts debating them in the public square and he is just wiping the floor with these guys. And these guys are getting embarrassed by this young guy, Stephen. And so there begins to be a stirring among those leaders and they're like, we gotta get rid of this guy just like we got rid of Jesus. And so they do what they did to Jesus. They create false charges against him and they bring him up on charges and they stone him in the streets. So Stephen, who just showed up in chapter six, a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, is now stoned to death in Acts chapter seven publicly as a showing to say to everybody, you better not act like this guy. So in Acts chapter 7, the persecution begins. And there's just a little footnote there. You wouldn't even notice it if you didn't read the rest of Acts. At the end of chapter 7, that says, while they were stoning him to death, one of the guys doing it was a young Pharisee by the name of Saul. Keep your eyes open. You may meet him later. And so persecution begins in Acts chapter 7. And that brings us to Acts chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So just being a Christian meant they were going to kick in your door and drag you off and put you in prison. We already saw that they had put Stephen to death. And so this incredible persecution arises right there in Jerusalem and the church is being snuffed out before it even has a chance to grow to maturity. And if you're just reading this for the first time, you say, well, I guess that's the end of that movement. I sure didn't last long, did it? I mean, it looked kind of promising at first. All these great things were happening, the power of God, people coming, new people being added day by day, these people having this amazing experience with God, but it, it fizzles out because who wants to join a religious movement where you're going to end up in jail or even get killed for it? So what do they do? Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered 
went about preaching the word. <laughs> they chased them out of their houses. They chased them out of their hometown. They had to go to cities and countries where they didn't know anybody, didn't know the culture, didn't have a place to stay, didn't speak the language. So what did they do? They went about preaching the word. And by the way, this is not the apostles. It, it, it says in verse uh, 1, at the end of verse 1, that people got scattered except the apostles. The apostles stayed there in Jerusalem to lead the church. These are not the apostles. They're going about preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus in these surrounding areas. Now, now think about this. Their rights were violated. Their property was seized. Their families were broken up. They were, they were under threat of death and, and imprisonment and persecution. Their culture was completely resistant to them. And now they're being literally physically attacked. Imagine that. Imagine being a Christian in a culture that doesn't respect Christianity. I'll give you a second. <laughs> where, where some people actually hated them for their faith. Where, where some people actively worked against them to try to stop what was happening in them. Where the government was not on their side. Where the courts did not step in and protect their rights. And the people looked at them like they were some kind of weirdos. Imagine that. So how did they respond? Well, before we answer that, let's go back to the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 8. If you don't have this verse memorized by the time we're done with the book of Acts, I'm going to kick you out. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Eight chapters later, nobody has left Judea. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, the city, Judea, the surrounding area, Samaria, across the tracks, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That is the mission. And eight chapters into this book, nobody has left. And I don't know if you've noticed this in your life, but I've noticed it in mine. When I know what God wants me to do and I don't do it, he has ways of helping me. Have you noticed that? He has ways, right? And so um, they, they, end up, they end up running for their lives. They, they weren't willing to leave. Now they're not willing to stay. They're, they're, they're fleeing as fast as they can. And by the way, aren't you glad they did? <laughs> most of us in this room, most of us hearing this message online, most of us are Gentiles. This was a Jewish faith at this time. Aren't you glad that God in his perfect wisdom saw fit to take this church, these people he loved so, so much and allow the heat in their lives to be turned up to the point where they had no choice but to run for their lives 
Because if they hadn't, the gospel would have continued to be this little cult in Jerusalem because nobody likes to leave their comfort zone. Romans 8, 28 reminds us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those are called according to his purpose. He didn't bring the persecution, but he allowed the persecution and used it to launch the church. And so this incredible revival movement leaves Jerusalem, leaves Judea, and goes to Samaria and the surrounding regions. Now, this um, incredible revival movement starts in the midst of deep and painful circumstances for the church during a time of extreme racial tension. If you remember, you don't look this up, I'll just tell you about it, you can trust me. In, in Luke chapter 9, read it in your quiet times this week. In Luke chapter 9, um, they're in this little town of Samaria and the people won't accept them there because they're Jews. And Peter and John go to Jesus. Yeah, this is true, look it up, Luke chapter 9. Peter and John go to Jesus and go, hey, why don't we call fire out of heaven and burn them up? Seriously. And Jesus looks at them and goes, seriously? That's their attitude towards Samaritans. You know, burn them up. The world's a better place without them. They're not even worthy of being kept alive. That's the Jewish view of Samaritans. And in the midst of that kind of racial religious bigotry, these Jewish Christians are forced to flee to where? Samaria. How great is God? In the, in the midst of all of that, they end up in Samaria. And that's where Philip went, Samaria. Philip, remember, he was one of the seven. Stephen had already been killed. There's only six of these guys left, and now they're fleeing. Philip ends up in Samaria. And guess what he did when he got to Samaria? He proclaimed Christ and he met the people's needs. Samaritan people. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. He shows up to these hated people and he brings them the love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform their lives. All right, quick recap. Church growth in Jerusalem, the good times. By now, chapter 8, those are the good old days, right? Followed by persecution. Stephen is killed. The, the church is being ravaged by Saul and his minions. People are being dragged off and put into G, uh, jail. These are the hard times. And so Philip and some others flee to Samaria and minister to the people who are nothing like them. And these, my friends, are the fruitful times. And don't forget, all of this is extremely uncomfortable. 
they are reaching out to the other side of the tracks during a time of all of this racial tension. These Christian Jews decided not to make it about geography. They decided not to make it about race. They decided not to make it about class. They decided not to make it about culture. They just made it about Jesus. And something amazing happens when the people of God just make their lives about Jesus and let all these other things, important as they might be, become peripheral issues. Jesus is the issue. Jesus is the issue. Jesus is the issue. And when they understood that, transformation began to take place. Now, as if all this is not enough, it is about to get ridiculously crazy. Now they're reaching out to Samaritans. That's bizarre. But it's about to get really crazy. You see, the gospel is not only good for lowly Samaritans, but to a Jew in this time, who is more low than a Samaritan? Well, look at verse 9. Now, there was a man named Simon. Now, this guy's a Samaritan. There's a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. So this is a... Samaritan sorcerer. <laughs> if you're a Jew, this guy is a Samaritan sorcerer. You don't even call down fire from heaven for a guy like this. You just beat him to death in the street. This is the worst possible guy. He is, he is what, um, you know, every time I'm in Africa, when I go into small villages, Almost all of them have a witch doctor. And, and we, you know, we think witch doctor, we think Gilligan's Island. A witch doctor is a pagan religious leader who, through black arts, actually is in touch with Satan himself and has power. And the people see that power and are drawn to him, and he becomes rich. That's what Simon is. Simon is a sorcerer among the Samaritans, and the Samaritans are pagan Jews mixed up. And the people honored him as God. They didn't just say, he has the great power of God. They said, he is the great power of God. This is God himself. And they began to worship him. And you know what he did? He accepted their worship. There's a place on the big island of Hawaii where I've been snorkeling. It's called Captain Cook's Point. If you ever go to the big island and you like to snorkel, it's, it's the best spot. The thing is, you can't get to Captain Cook's Point directly because it's all surrounded by jagged cliffs caused by the volcano. And so you can't really get there. 
Um, but there's like this, this point, and then there's this cliff falls off. You have to kayak your way over or pay some charter boat to take you out there so that you can snorkel there. But when you look, it's like way up there on the top of the thing, and it just goes down to these rocks, this cliff. And it's called Captain Cook's Point because it's at Captain Cook's Point where when Captain Cook came to the island and the, the um, natives met uh, a person from outside of the island for the first time, and he came on this great ship, and he had all these modern things, they thought he was God. So they worshiped him, and he let them. And he became not just the king of Hawaii, he became the king of kings in their mind. And they bowed down and worshiped him, and they made sacrifices to him, and they made him rich. Until one day, his sidekick, his Smee, gets sick and dies. And the chief says... If he's a god, how come his dude died? Bra. <laughs> and so they take him up to the top of this cliff and they throw him off. And that's why it's called Captain Cook's Point. See, it's one thing that people want to worship you when they see what you have and all you can do. It's another thing when you accept that worship. That was Simon. Simon had been accepting worship as if he was God, and yes, he got rich because of it. Now, if this was fiction and I was writing this story, the next verse would say something like this, and they dragged Simon into the town square and chopped off his head right in front of everybody as an example. But amazingly, that is not what it says. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, we don't have time to read the rest of this, but Simon is so confused by this that he, he actually offers the disciples money to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from them because he doesn't get it. But what blows my mind is that you not only have Samaritans, but you have a Samaritan witch doctor. And they preach the gospel to him too. And he becomes a follower of Christ too. Philip shares the gospel and he turns to Jesus. Man, how powerful is this gospel? I'm so glad you asked. Because take your Bibles, if you're in Acts, just turn one book to the right, go to Romans chapter 1. We have to see this. This is another one of those verses that's worth memorizing. you got to highlight it, put a star by it, underline words. Here's what it says. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. That's what they thought Simon was. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. To who? To the Jew and to the Greek. It turns out Simon is not the great power of God. The gospel is. 
It turns out Philip is not the power of God. The gospel is. Religion is not the power of God. The gospel is. Politics is not the source of transformation. The gospel is. Riots are not the best way to bring about change. The gospel is. Money is not the solution to our problems. The gospel is. And there's no barrier between people that is strong enough to stand against this great power of God we call the gospel. And you and I are the carriers of that gospel, Christians. We're a part of the commission. Listen, (laughs) this will tie you into my introduction. It's impossible for me to read this passage and not see the parallels to our current situation. Theirs was a culture divided. It was divided by religion. It was divided by race. It was divided by geography. It was divided by ideology. There were the haves and the have-nots. There was political division. I mean, division ruled the day. Sound familiar? The Jews and the Samaritans, they couldn't agree on anything. And I'm not making light of their differences. And I would not dare to make light of our differences. These are serious issues. But I can't help but be hopeful in our day, in our culture, to see how the gospel knocked down all of those dividing walls for these people. For example, racism is a terrible sin. I don't know what you think about certain movements or certain political ideals or whatever, but man, if you don't understand that racism is a terrible sin, you don't own a Bible. Racism is a terrible sin, amen? Amen. Okay, so racism is a terrible sin, but it is no match for the power of the gospel. So so are, are we shaking in our boots because in our culture there's racial tension, guys? That racial tension is not a good thing. It's, n- it's not good, the, the history that we have of, of uh, racial injustice and racial inequality and all of that kind of stuff. It's not a good thing, no matter where you find it or how it's been carried out, it's not a good thing. But Romans 8.28 says God takes even bad things and uses them for good. And I'm telling you, the gospel knocks down walls. And so racism is powerful, but it's no match for the power of the gospel. I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. And we're getting short on time, so I don't have as much time here as I would like to spend on this. But just pick it up with me in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Paul has just said that it's by grace that you're saved through faith and it's not of yourself. And then he says this, verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking to us, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that's the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. There was an us and there was a them and you were the them, Paul says. And you had no hope without God in the world. But now, verse 13, 
in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen, Gentiles? <laughs> Guys, I was preaching to an empty room for a long time. Help me out, will you? Right? And so we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Look at this. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. That is the power of of the gospel. It seems like everywhere I look, I see walls up between people. And we have tried political solutions. And we have tried to throw money at the problem. And, and, and we have tried marches and even riots. And, and, and there's been media blitzes and propaganda in the schools and on the internet and all of that kind of stuff. So many things have been tried. And guess what? The walls dividing us are getting taller, not shorter. Would you not agree? And, and, and I'm here to tell you, church, we have been called to be the carriers of the solution. The gospel breaks down walls. The gospel destroys barriers. The gospel takes groups of two and makes them one. The gospel heals marriages. The gospel brings forgiveness where there had only been bitterness. The gospel brings hope. And we're the carriers of the solution. We are the movement that has been empowered to kick down every wall that has been raised up between us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, to the Jew and to the Greek, to men and to women, to black and to brown and to yellow and to white and to red-skinned people and to young people and to old people and to Republicans and to Democrats and to Americans and to immigrants. He breaks down the wall. The gospel is the solution. Jesus makes us one. And we're going to be launching in a couple of weeks into the next section of our study of Acts that looks at what it is like for the church to be one. And we have to understand that our flag our rallying cry is not national, it's not racial, it is not financial, it is not political, it is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And you're no different than Philip. Same Holy Spirit, same gospel, same mission with God. Philip was just a guy transformed by the power of the gospel who was loving God, loving people, and changing the world. I'm not trying to be simplistic. I know the issues are real. I know the challenges are huge. But the gospel is real too. And our God is huge too. And by God's grace, just like Philip, you and I have been called to carry the torch of the gospel to those who need it, wherever they may be, whoever they may be, 
however they may be. Isn't it time for the walls to come down? What borders do you need to cross in order to be a carrier of the power of the gospel of God? Relational borders? Cultural borders? Language barriers? Geographical borders? Political, ideological borders? I'm going to leave you with this challenge and then we'll pray. I challenge you to make this your daily prayer. Even just this week, see if it doesn't change your life. In the morning when you get up, make this your daily prayer. Lord, make me your ambassador today. Let's pray together. God, as we think about the things that we have allowed to divide us, the things that have allowed us to um, harbor bitterness, to judge others, to separate ourselves from people, they seem so small compared to the sacrifice of the cross. And so forgive us, God, when we have just boxed ourselves in allowed ourselves to be defined by peripheral issues and separated ourselves from people you love because we didn't like their politics or their skin color or their financial status. Forgive us, God, for letting the flesh define us instead of being defined by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now, Lord, we, we lift ourselves to you, our hands, our hearts, our, our whole selves, and we say, God, make us one. As you and the Father are one, make us one, Lord, that we might stand as an example to a world that needs to see that. And then, Lord, make us your ambassadors. Take us across railroad tracks. Take us across borders. Take us across political spectrums. Take us across the street to our neighbors that we might be ambassadors for you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.